Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Recovery Talk. I hope you are all doing well. Personally, I think October has been one of the shittiest months I've had in a long time. Just so much happening. Uh, very notably, an unexpected move that I had by no means seen coming. Uh, basically, my landlord is selling the apartment I've been living in for two and a half years. So I have to move. And I was like, damn, how am I going to find a place with my massive dog? <laughs> it's not a lot of landlords that will accept that. But I did, after a lot of searching, a lot of back and forth, I did eventually find somewhere to stay with me and my beloved dog. So I'm looking forward to be moving in two weeks from now. And yeah, going to be good to have it all sorted, but a lot of work. I did have to venture out of London town, so we are moving out to Surrey in not necessarily the countryside, but a little bit more countryside than what we were in previously. But yeah, I'm looking forward to a new chapter. Anyways, guys, now to today's topic. So today I wanted to talk about bone density and bone health and osteopenia and osteoporosis. This is an area where there are so many misconceptions, unfortunately also within the medical field. So I think it was uh, last week, I did a Substack post where I was discussing a bit about hormones. Specifically, I was discussing it a bit in the context of periods and sex drive, etc., etc. But I did also touch upon bone health. So I thought it could be good actually to have an episode today where I explain a little bit more about around the science of, you know, bone density, how it entails to eating disorders, what to do, and yeah. So if you want to follow me on Substack or even just check it out and have a read, it is letsrecover.substack.com. You can join as a free subscriber or as a paid subscriber, up to you. Paid subscribers get some extra perks such as access to a library of bonus podcast episodes and also now I'm starting doing this thing where I'm having Q&As with the paid subscribers as well. Substack is essentially like a blog, I would say that's the best description. It's like, yeah, like I was going to say a written podcast, but that's literally what a blog is, isn't it? So yeah, let's get into it with today's episode. So I want to start this episode with a story that I may have told before, maybe even more than once, but I think this just illustrates the medical lack of knowledge that people with eating disorders often face. So this was over 10 years ago, and I had not had my periods at that time for a year, and there was quite significant weight loss. I was quite unwell with my eating disorder. So my family essentially pushed me to go to my GP, and they said that yeah, you should go there to you know ensure that your bone density is okay because you know that not having your periods and you know having an eating disorder it can affect your bone density and I was very hesitant I didn't want to go to the doctor for my eating disorder but I think for me it was easier to go to the doctor for my bones right because then I didn't have to say oh I have an eating disorder I just said oh can we just check that everything is okay with my bones right so I eventually agreed so I entered the doctor's office and it's this older man and yeah, he essentially kind of points out my weight loss because it was my family GP at the time. Uh, and he's asking me, is your family concerned about you, you know, with your weight loss? And I say, yeah, they are a bit concerned. <laughs> a bit was an understatement. They were quite concerned. And he says, oh, tell them not to worry. It's completely okay. 
Just make sure you don't get anorexia. Pardon? Dude, that's why I'm here. I was even significantly underweight at the time, but that should not matter because an eating disorder is not a weight disorder. But this just shows how uneducated some doctors are by eating disorders because here I was presenting the most stereotypical case of anorexia you can imagine. A young, thin, white woman entering with significant weight loss. Like, that's like the stereotype, yet he was not even able to identify it. Anyways, back to the period and back to the bones. So I did ask him about uh, my period loss and bone density and essentially he told me not to worry because losing your period is completely fine. It happens to athletes all the time, he said, as if <laughs> athletes would be immune to the consequences, which they're not, which I'll talk about soon. And yeah, I was essentially told not to worry, right? And now working with people with eating disorders, I see this a lot, that people will not have it clearly expressed to them from healthcare professionals just how harmful an eating disorder is on the skeleton. I left that doctor's office, just my eating disorder completely fueled, thinking, oh yeah, I'm not sick enough, right? That means that I can now continue to engage in my eating disorder that I don't even have. Thank God I eventually did get treatment sometime later, unfortunately after my eating disorder gotten even worse, because the months after that doctor visit was my absolute low. And then I entered a outpatient clinic where there were doctors that were actually informed about eating disorders, and one of the first thing the doctor at that clinic did was order me a bone density scan. And I had that bone density scan, and guess what? I had osteopenia all over. My bone density was on the level of a senior citizen, and I was in my late teens at this time. In other words, the invalidating doctor was completely wrong. I wish my story was rare, but I hear the same thing from clients and from podcast listeners, from people who contact me over and over and over, that their healthcare prof professionals will be quite invalidating, just of the eating disorders in general, yes, but the bone density, they don't have a clue. And some of the things that they're prescribing is just not things that are helpful. So now let's talk a bit about the science of bone density loss. What is actually happening? So... During starvation, what's essentially happening is that the body and brain is detecting, wow, resources are really scarce right now. That means that we should not reproduce. We need to really prioritize survival right now. As a result, it essentially switches down the sex hormones. This goes in people who are assigned female at birth, and it also goes in people who are assigned male at birth. I'll talk a bit about the sex differences when it comes to bone density in a bit. So essentially what's happening is that if you're someone who has, you know, gone through puberty, essentially your body is turning down all of those, what can I say, adult hormones, <laughs> all of the sex hormones, essentially kind of reverting you back to almost like a childlike state hormonally. As a result, very often people notice a lack of sex drive in people who, of course, normally have a sex drive. If you are someone assigned female at birth who normally menstruate, you may lose your periods, even though this is a bit individual, I'll talk about this later. And also in males, testosterone will tend to drop, so males will often also notice, you know, lack of sex drive and also erect erectile dysfunction as well, which is funnily oftentimes shortened ED, which has created some linguistic misunderstandings in online communities. In people assigned female at birth, you often see that the estrogen levels drop, you see that the 
follicle-stimulating hormone, the luteinizing hormone, essentially, it all just drops down. The body is saying, we cannot reproduce right now. And the body is also saying, we cannot afford to keep a healthy skeleton under these conditions. So the body goes in full survival mode, shuts off non-essential functions, and this creates a lot of damage. This whole process I'm talking about here with turning off the sex hormones actually has a fancy name. It is called hypotolemic hypogonadism and this happens in people who are male and people who are female. And to make matters worse, the stress hormone in the body, cortisol, spikes. What is so scary about bone, bone density and eating disorders is how rapid it often is, right? So in my case, from the time I lost my period to the time I did the scan, that was one year, just over a year, I think it was. And that was sufficient for me to develop osteopenia, which is low bone density. So essentially there are two types of low bone density and it's a bit on a spectrum, right? So we have osteopenia, which is low bone density, but to a point where some of it can be reversed. And then you have osteoporosis, which is essentially osteopenia that has gone so far that it is no longer reversible. There is some conflicting information out there about whether or not to what point what is reversible, especially if you're someone quite young. So essentially we fully grow into our skeleton around, I think it is early twenties. So some say that actually you can reverse more if you are younger. But what I will say is that complete normalization of significant bone loss throughout an eating disorder is unfortunately quite rare. But a lot of times, especially if you are more in the osteopenia stage, you can reverse and improve a lot of it and you can prevent further damage from happening. But unfortunately, if you're someone who has significant bone density loss, it is unfortunately unlikely that you will just get back to amazing bone health, right? It is... It is unlikely. I guess there is individual difference here, but unfortunately, bone density loss is one of the, one of the actually quite few, one of the few complications from an eating disorder that is not necessarily fully reversible. It can be improved, it can be managed, you can stop further damage, you can reverse some. I have personally reversed a lot of my osteopenia, so it is possible, but it is one of those where it's a bit tricky. You see something similar with tooth health, for example. So a lot of people with eating disorder, especially if they're purging, have quite bad teeth. This is something that cannot always be completely fixed. I mean, thankfully now we have dentists, we can go and fix and <laughs> repair things, but it's more like, it's one of those things that doesn't repair itself as efficiently as, for example, you see with other things in the body. For example, so much of what is broken down in the body throughout an eating disorder actually is able to fully reverse itself. Not to mention we can mentally rewire ourselves, right? This is the very important part. We can mentally rewire our brain to go from terrified from for food to actually being completely neutral around it, right? So mental and physical recovery is very significant in eating disorder, but there are some things where unfortunately you cannot necessarily always get to 100%. I personally did my bone density scan after having had my periods for, I think it was a year, maybe two, not can't completely remember and it had improved but it was still a bit in the lower lower range of things one thing that often confuses people when it comes to bone density is this talk about periods like what what has to do what, what does a period have to do with bone density right essentially our hormones are very important and related to our bone density right we need that proper hormonal function to produce healthy bone 
Nevertheless, this does not mean that if you are someone who is menstruating and you have an eating disorder, that your bones are automatically fine, nor that you are automatically fine. Also, if you are someone who is assigned female at birth and you are on the birth control pill, you are not actually having periods, right? This is something a lot of people don't know. That is withdrawal bleeding. It is essentially pill-induced bleed. It is not a full period. This is a huge mistake people with eating disorder often make is that they think, oh, I don't have my period. I'm just gonna go on the pill. I'll get it back, I'll be fine. No, this does not restore the damage. Recovery restores the damage, right? There is one thing that can help a bit and that is estrogen patches. Of course, this is, I cannot prescribe anything, right? There's some evidence that estrogen patches can be quite effective because it's actually giving you, <laughs> giving you those sex hormones, right? But I also think it's a bit dodgy because you don't want to let your eating disorder latch on to the fact that, oh, but I have something, I have, you know, this patch or I have this treatment that is helping my bones, so I don't need to worry about it, right? Also, sometimes people think that taking supplements like calcium, vitamin D, that, oh, that's fine, that's sorted it, right? I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's not really enough. It's kind of like a little drop in the ocean, right? It's like, it's not really going to make a massive difference. I mean, do it, but it's not really going to help if you're not addressing that underlying cause. So again, hormones, bones connected, right? So where does this leave people assigned male at birth who obviously don't menstruate? Well, what I spoke about with this hypotolemic hypogonadism, that is something that happens in males and females. It just manifests a little bit differently in the different sexes. Both sexes tend to experience some degree of sexual dysfunction, lack of libido, but in people assigned male at birth, they may notice that they have erectile dysfunction, they may notice that their testosterone is quite low. So the bone density loss essentially happen in both sexes. In transgender individuals who are on hormonal replacement therapy, there are some nuances here. And that's a little bit outside of my scope. It's just very important. And this was kind of what I wrote in the Substack article. It's important that you are discussing with your treatment team and taking the eating disorder into consideration and the consequences, the physical consequences of the eating disorder in consideration. If you are a transgender individual, you are going through hormonal replacement therapy. So one thing about low bone density is I mentioned, you know, osteoporosis, osteopenia. You can also have both at the same time in different areas of your body, right? So when, so bone density, low bone density is essentially identified with a bone density scan where essentially it's scanning your bone and it gives you a score about your bone density. Over a certain score, you have osteopenia. Over a certain score, you have osteoporosis. But what is possible is to have, for example, really low bone density in your lower back but then you have a little bit higher bone density in I don't know your your legs right so bone density can vary a bit throughout the body you can maybe have different scores in different areas of the body so one issue I often see when it comes to bone density scans is that treatment practitioners especially if they're not completely aware of eating disorders they don't always know how to read the results sometimes they may lack reference groups especially if they're working with quite a young client they wouldn't expect a young person to have so low bone density right and this is why I've had experiences with clients where they go get a bone density scan and the doctor kind of just shrugs. It's like, I don't really know what to do with this. I don't know how to read this, right? This is why it's so important to work with practitioners who understand eating disorders can take that into consideration. Another example that I sometimes see where things go a little bit wrong when it comes to low bone density and treatment practitioners is that the advice for low bone density 
as a result of an eating disorder, as a result of what I discussed you know, with that energy suppression and basically the body detecting, oh my God, we can't afford, you know, we can't afford reproduction. We can't afford keeping healthy bones. The solution to that kind of bone density loss is very different from the traditional treatment that sometimes get offered to people who have osteoporosis, osteopenia due to, for example, age. A good example is bone density tends to lower in postmenopausal women. As a result, postmenopausal women are often prescribed doing strength strength exercises, right? Because that is, in their case, can have some benefits in terms of increasing bone density. But this is slightly different than someone with an eating disorder. The best metaphor that comes to mind is this idea that strength exercise, the way it essentially works is that it breaks down the body so that it can rebuild stronger, right? Think about the muscle, right? Muscle breaks down, rebuilds stronger. The problem when you have an eating disorder and you're quite energy suppressed, your body is already broken down, right? So your body will rebuild with energy. You don't necessarily need to break it down further because it's already broken down. So giving it energy and rest will build it up. This is why I often see people with eating disorders actually gaining muscle in recovery from doing nothing but sitting in their sofa and doing forklifting, not weightlifting. And there was a study done in Canada where they looked at exercise and bone density in eating disorders. The study was done on a group of women with anorexia. And what they found was that the women who did exercise in their recovery, even moderate exercise, actually developed less bone density than the ones who fully rested. So essentially, this whole thing of exercise helping bone density that seems to be something that is applicable when someone is energy balanced, but when someone is in an energetic deficit, the opposite applies. And again, this would make complete sense because the body is already broken down. And we also know that in people who are assigned female at birth, who normally menstruate, who have lost their period from an eating disorder, we know that exercise in recovery can prevent restoration of periods. Even in people who are eating a lot, who are resting up, who are, you know, restoring weight, very often exercise is that kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. And don't get me wrong, I I know I said this a little bit earlier in this episode. This does not mean that if you do have your period, you're all good, all good to go, no problems here. That just means that your body prioritizes slightly differently, right? We know that different people are affected by starvation different and our body have different basically different priorities, right? It's kind of like the example I often use is that some people with eating disorders will still have very healthy looking shiny hair whilst their entire body is falling apart, right? Whilst other people will be literally at their deathbed, but they will still have menstrual periods. And this goes with other things I mentioned as well. Like not everyone assigned male at birth who have an eating disorder is going to have erectile dysfunction, right? It's not, it is just things that are common or when I say period loss, that might not even be that common. And a lot of times people lose their period maybe for some time, but then they maybe get it back very early in recovery, or they may instead have periods that are a bit irregular, right? So there is a lot of variance here. So some people may now think, okay, fair enough. Uh, I may have low bone density. You know, maybe you've had a bone density scan, or maybe you're just kind of adding one plus one together and realizing, ah, (laughs) good chance that my bone density is not exactly where it should be. And then you're thinking, well, so what? Like, what's the point? I don't feel anything. I know I don't notice it. And here's the thing. Bone density, it's a little bit like housing. (laughs) It's a little bit like housing. (laughs) 
you don't realize how important it is until you don't have it. Like, I never really appreciated having a home until I realized, oh, you, by the way, you're not going to have a home very soon, so you need to get out of here. And then suddenly I'm like, whoa, that's a really important thing to have, right? Bone density is one of those things. You don't really notice it until you really need it. And when do you really need it? Well, you really need it when you slip and fall, right? When there is an injury, that's when you really realize it. Low bone density means increased fracture risk. And my God, I've seen this unfortunately several times when working with people with eating disorders who, especially when if I work with, a typical example is if I work with an athlete, right? They will have low bone density, but then they're kind of like, oh, but I don't want to give up my sport, you know, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then what happens? Fracture. And because the bone density is low, it will sometimes also take a bit longer to fully heal, especially if you're someone who maybe still is a bit restrictive, still maybe is engaging in some compulsive movement. Again, you're burning off the energy that is needed for the repair, and then you may end up sidetracked for a long time. And it's just, trust me when I say, you don't want to wait until you fall and you break something from a fall that maybe for someone with healthy bone density would just lead to like some minor discomfort. But in your case, your bones are so fragile that it leads you completely sidetracked for months. You don't want that. Healthy bones is essential. These bones are going to carry you through your life for the rest of your life, right? Maybe you can't see the damage, But if you continue going down the path of the eating disorder and not restoring this this damage, the consequences will slap you in the face. Oh, trust me. I work with people who have, they've just been thinking, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then boom, something breaks and they are just so pissed at themselves and the eating disorder as to why they did not take it seriously sooner. And then the healthcare professionals will act all confused, like, oh, I don't understand why. Why are you why are you not healing? Why is this happening? Why are you breaking so your leg breaking so bad? You're so young. This shouldn't happen. <sighs> I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it. You don't want that to happen to you. People who have a past history of anorexia have something like 300 or 200 to 300% increased risk of fractures. That is significant. And when it comes to fractures, it's not always that you just trip and fall and then something break. You can also experience stress fractures, right? And I've seen this sometimes in people who are compulsive, engaging in compulsive movement, they'll just exercise and exercise and then they notice a certain pain in a certain part of their body and they don't realize, oh shit, something was broken. And then comes a long time of healing. And here we unfortunately have a recipe for chronic pain. And it can also developed into disability, right, where the bone essentially starts compressing and you can develop things such as, for example, a permanently hunched back. So for God's sake, take your health seriously. Take your bone health seriously. Don't just eat some yogurt and pop some vitamin D and then you think, oh, I'm fine now. Address the underlying issue. So when it comes to hormones and eating disorders, I really want to discuss this a bit more in a future episode. I think it's so sad to see how many misconceptions there are within, again, misconceptions in medical field and within endocrinology about eating disorders. Again, not every doctor misunderstands it. There are a lot of amazing doctors who really knows what they're doing. 
But what I see a lot of times is that in people assigned female at birth, they will go into a gynecologist's office and they will have a lack of period. They may do a scan of the ovaries. The ovaries will often come up as polycystic, which essentially just means that you haven't ovulated, right? And then they will wrongly be diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, or they may be here polycystic ovaries, and then they think that means polycystic ovary syndrome. So the patient can also sometimes just misunderstand a bit of miscommunication, right? And polycystic ovary syndrome is something completely different to what is called hypotolemic amenorrhea. So hypotolemic amenorrhea is what I describe when we're talking about basically the body stops producing certain, slow standard production of certain sex hormones to basically make you infertile to save energy and make sure that you're not reproducing in this really scarce environment that your body and brain is detecting that you're in, right? And I would actually love to hear a bit from you guys. If you're listening on, I think Spotify would have this option. Maybe also Apple Podcasts have this option. I'll add a little little like comment box or like a box where you can submit. So if you are someone who is assigned female at birth and you have experienced that your hypotolemic amenorrhea, so basically period loss from an eating disorder, have been suspected as PCOS or misdiagnosed as PCOS, or maybe even you have been told, oh, could be PCOS, and now you're panicking because the treatment for PCOS is very restrictive, right? I mean, it's not really, it shouldn't be, but a lot of doctors tend to recommend quite restrictive measures for PCOS, which is not effective, but that's a whole other story. So if you are in that boat, I would love to hear from you and also love to hear if anyone is interested in an episode on that. It is quite medical, but I think it is something very important and something where there's so many misconceptions. So yeah. So overall, when it comes to something like bone density, it is important to address the underlying issue. And if the underlying issue is, you know, as we're talking about this, basically this sex hormones being put on pause as a response to famine, then we need to address that, right? And the underlying issue here is energetic deficits. So rest, refeeding, restoration, you know, three of the four essential R's. The fourth R is, as you know, reprogramming slash rewiring. That is also very important, but that refers more to the mental aspects, right? But the first three of the R's, you know, restoration, so essentially gaining weight to your body's natural set point weight, not just some random minimum BMI that your clinic may have set for you, that may not be your set point. Instead, finding your body's happy weight, refeeding, so eating generously, probably a lot more than you think and definitely a lot more than what your eating disorder wants. Because by doing so, you are telling your body and brain that, hey, we are in abundance, right? Food is not a scarce resource anymore. You can't restrict your way through recovery. You can technically, actually you can physically restore a bit of weight while still restricting because your body is so suppressed and it kind of holds on to everything it gets because, you know, it's trying to keep you alive, right? But that's not really a good route to go down, right? Because essentially you're recovering on the eating disorders terms and you're not getting the full physical benefits if you're still under eating in recovery. And then last but not least, you need to rest. If you are compulsively moving throughout recovery, you are preventing a lot of mental and physical healing from happening. Essentially, your body is, think about your body being in that famine mode, right? That migration mode. If you have listened to the episode I did about the adapted to flee famine hypothesis and actually keep that a bit in mind, I think it makes so much sense. The excessive movement, essentially, according to this theory and according to what I personally think 
makes the most sense by eating disorder, eating disorders, is that the compulsive movement is telling your body and brain that we are essentially, we're on the go, right? We are like the birds migrating from one space to another. You know, the combination of excessive movement with little food essentially is telling your body and brain that we are in a, we are in migration, right? We are migrating from A to B. So we can't really afford reproducing right now and we need to keep moving. So then what happens? Urges to move get stronger from the energetic deficit itself, right? Very fascinating stuff. I wish there were more research exactly into how this works. I love evolutionary psychology, as you know, and I hope there's going to be more research into, into excessive movement and eating disorders and how come excessive movement often gets worsened gets triggered more by an energetic deficit, right? So it's like the more you overexercise, the more urges you get to overexercise, right? But again, that that is something I've spoken a bit about in previous episodes. I've also done one called exercise and eating disorders, something to check out. I've done quite a few episodes about, you know, lower level movement, compulsive walking, a lot of these things. So do check that out and also will do one. I have one scheduled to hopefully within the next few weeks, maybe the next few months, uh, about compulsive movement as well. So that one will come out a little bit later. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this chat about bone density, bone health, and eating disorders. Take care of yourself and do the work now. Don't fall into the trap of postponing, postponing, postponing. You're never going to feel completely ready. You get ready by doing. Okay, guys, I hope you have an amazing week. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to, you know, leave a rating, share with a friend, and also feel free to follow me over at Substack at letsrecover.substack.com or over at Instagram at Amalia Lee or at letsrecover.co.uk. I'm going to try and get a bit more into the social media game. I have been mostly sticking to more Substack and podcasts lately. Uh, I'm a little bit disillusioned by social media lately, which maybe could be a topic for a future episode, but I do really enjoy connecting with you guys. And that's pretty much the only reason why I'm actually (laughs) even on social media still, right? So yeah, happy to connect with you guys there and have an amazing week and I will see you guys next week.